we are only going to get through two verses today. And the reason for that is, first of all, I want to lay a really strong foundation today for what we're going to get into next week, because next week we're going to get into a pretty loaded concept, and it's the concept of Jesus as the new Adam. And it's, it's a lot in there, and a lot, it's, it's very cool, but I, I want to lay a foundation for that today, and I also want to just share a little bit with you about our summer today uh, with that. So um, last, uh, well, two weeks ago when we were on Romans, Chris did a really great job, uh, uh, sorting through Romans 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. Uh, so he was on that whole passage, but because it was Cinco de Mayo and we limited his time so much, he focused most of his time on that first half and we kind of did, cut him off on that last two verses. So I'm going to just tackle those last two verses. He read them, uh, but, he don't, but he focused on the other part. Uh, so I'm going to focus on verses 10 and 11. And in framing this passage and in framing this message for you this morning, uh, we need to note that what Paul is actually leading us into. Uh, because again, today we're not going to read about Adam, we're not going to read about that specifically, but Paul is ramping up uh, and to explain to us the big idea of the mess that humanity has made for itself from the time of Adam all the way to right now and what we still do to this day. So from the time that Adam exchanged the glory of God for the knowledge of good and evil, all the way until right now. Um, that's kind of been the pattern that's kind of set us up for, the, um, for history. The pattern you see in the story of Adam and in all of history to follow is always that man sins against God, man thinks he can do it better than God, man tries to live his own life, he tries to be his own God, but ultimately God still loves him anyway, which is actually quite amazing. It's quite miraculous. God still protects him. God still does not rule him out. God does not count him out and say, oh, this person is uh, disqualified. He'll never be anybody now. God doesn't do that. And ultimately, God has promised to redeem his people and to put us back. So we're going to get right into it. And again, I'm only going to read two verses. So I'm going to read Romans 5, uh, and I'm going to just read uh, verses 10 and 11. And this is what it says. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word that Don and I got for Courage Church from the very moment we got here about four years ago, the word that God just kept putting on our hearts over and over and over again is the word reconciliation. Uh, you know that. Most of you know that. If you've been here for very long at all, you know that's, that's the word. You know that's what we do. Uh, it's, it's just about everything that we do falls under that category. I have it printed on my t-shirt right now. We're building a table that can seat like almost 100 people at it that we call the reconciliation table. I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Uh, we've told stories and after story of reconciliation over the years that's happened from the time that we got here. And, I, and we've seen God continuously reconcile people's lives uh, back to him and people's marriages back to one another and people just coming together. And reconciliation has just been very prominent in what we do around here and in what we get to witness around here. And I believe that a reason for that is the fact that we've just determined that's the main thing. 
That's what we're going to be all about. We're going to be all about reconciliation. But even though, like, every single person uh, who has sat under our teaching for any amount of time will say, well, that's the word, that's the word, that's the word, reconciliation, a lot of people who we've talked to still don't quite know what it means. Even at times, I even have a little bit of a difficult time articulating it very clearly. So I want to take a couple of minutes to flesh this out for you this morning. Um, we're going to talk a little bit later about some Hebrew, uh, which is fascinating. And, but first, the word reconciliation in the Greek is the word katalage. Katalage. And quite, to be honest, there's nothing that's like particularly loaded or, or amazingly deep or insightful that I know of that's sort of in this Greek definition. Simply the word means... Uh, to put back or to exchange. It's a term that was used to describe the restoration of the favor of God placed back on a sinner. That's literally what it's saying. It's saying, so the favor of God uh, is now placed on a sinner that is being, it's being restored. The favor of God is being restored to sinful people. So to people who are far from God are being drawn back into relationship with God simply because of how much God loves them. That's essentially what that Greek word means. That God loves you so much that he's going to do this. But the way that it's used in the Bible is absolutely fascinating. Jesus himself never once says the word. At least it's not recorded in the Bible that Jesus says the word. But yet his entire life embodied it. As he, he modeled this concept that we try to hold on to so dearly of just reaching people right where they are. That was the way of Jesus. Jesus, time and time again, he would meet people right where they are uh, in all of their messes as the religious leaders and the Pharisees watched and discussed. I think of moments like when he reached out to Zacchaeus or when he called Matthew to the ministry, or when he met with uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, or, the, or when he intervened with the woman caught in the act of adultery. It's just case after case after case in which a person was outcast by the religious. They were outcast or set aside by the church of that day, and by the religious standard, these people were considered to be far from God, and in some cases, too far gone. When Jesus, he just steps right in the center of all of that brokenness, and he meets them right where they are. So he is the picture of reconciliation. That's what we get. But Paul is the only writer to actually use the word in the New Testament. But Paul takes this word so seriously that, in fact, he says, the ministry that you have been given is the ministry of reconciliation. It's the only ministry that Paul or any other writer in the New Testament tells us by name that we've been given this, this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. So what that's saying, ultimately, is that we're gonna, we need to reconcile with others, but ultimately lead them into a reconcil reconciliation situation with Jesus. So for us to say, like the, the Second Corinthians, we'll talk about it in a moment, but it says we've been entrusted with that message, the message of reconciliation. It, what it means is that we live our lives today in Detroit, in our communities today, in such a way that demonstrates to the people of our community the love of God who did everything necessary to reconcile with us. Jesus already did that. That's the message in Romans, is that Jesus did it. The price has already been paid 
for reconciliation, and reconciliation can now be a reality for anyone. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says this of this word. It says, reconciliation always denotes a disposition or an economy of God. It brings men, it brings before men the action by which God takes them up again into fellowship with himself. It is an action of God on the world which does not belong only to the past, but it still continues. It keeps going. The ministry of reconciliation means that we show people how much God loves them, how much he's always loved them, and how wide his arms of grace truly are that he will never, ever, ever stop loving them. So when a person comes to Jesus, obviously that's reconciliation. They're being reconciled back into that place that God had always intended them to be. When a child leaves a home and betrays his parents, like you get in the parable of the, of the prodigal son, and yet the parents love him the entire time, they love him through it, and they accept him back the moment he's ready to come back. What that is is reconciliation. And that's a human example of it, but it is an embodiment or a model that points us to what Jesus has done for us. When we love somebody who thinks that they're beyond the love of God or that God has given up on them, and that leads to them having an encounter in which they realize Jesus actually meant it when he died on the cross for me. He actually loved me so much that he would do that. That is reconciliation. So, of course, our go-to passage here is 2 Corinthians 5. When Paul says, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. But then it says this, and it's so significant. It says, this is how you reconcile people. You're an ambassador of Jesus, and you do it the way Jesus did it, and this is how Jesus did it. He reconciled people back to God by not counting their trespasses against them. So we use this because it gives us clear instruction for how the church is supposed to react to sinful people. It's supposed to meet them right where they are and reconcile them back to God right where they are and show them a love that surpasses anything that they've ever understood in their entire lives. See, this is what I don't think we realize. Most people are far from God because they've been sold the lie that they have to be. They've been convinced that if, if there really is a God, I'm way beyond the scope of his arms, way beyond his reach. And what has happened is this, because a lot of us, I think, maybe unintentionally, some people were raised to believe that way. And if you're raised to believe that way, that Jesus won't save you until after you change, then even if you do change, you're never going to know how to truly love another person. You're never going to know how to love other people because you're going to always see other people demonstrate reasons why they're far from God. You're going to get this window into other people's lives. You're going to even think about your own life and what it does almost subconsciously is it creates a chasm in our minds where we view people who, are, who maybe sin in a different way than we, are, than we do as, as if they're in a different category than us entirely. It's kind of this us and them mindset that we don't even do on purpose. It's where we say, well, you better do this, right? You got to join our side. And then after you joined our side, then God will forgive you. But it's actually the 100% opposite of every single thing that Jesus Christ has ever modeled. The message of Jesus Christ has always been based on hope and never on fear. Like think of the uh, woman at the well 
The, the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, it's in John 4, and it's the story of a woman who, she'd gone through many, many husbands, and now she was living with a man that was not her husband. And, uh, and Jesus is in this encounter with her, and, she, and he starts to tell her everything that she had ever done. In fact, when she leaves and goes to talk to the town, she says, come and see a man who has told me everything that I've ever done. But notice this. Not a single time did Jesus condemn her for it. Instead, he offered her living water because he realized you're trying to fill yourself in all these things that will never, ever truly quench your thirst. You will never be full until you experience the living water of the Holy Spirit. Here, take this instead, right? He offered her something better. He, ho- he offered her hope that life does not have to keep going this way. It, has, it doesn't have to go on this way. It can change. The spirit of the living God can grab a hold of your life and who you are today does not have to be the person that you are tomorrow. But most of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we would have handled that evangelism opportunity differently than Jesus did most likely. Had we had that big of a window into her life, we probably would have spun it like, look at all you've done wrong. You look at what you need. If you don't do this thing, if you don't say this prayer, if you don't, then you're going to be in way worse trouble than you are right now. See, here's the thing that I want us to be careful with as we embody this reconciliation thing in our community. When you get a window into somebody else's life, like the one that Jesus had, that moment at the well, that's going to bring out in you just how much the gospel has actually taken shape in your life. It's, it's going to, in whether or not you've actually grasped it. See, it's an enormous amount of power to know someone else's story. And God's really put that on our hearts. Like, we really need to learn people's stories. We need to be in community with people to the point where we're grinding life out with them and we're actually hearing their stories. We're facing their situations with them. That's our heart. But that's a lot of power. And I guarantee you that if you, if you use that power against them, they will open up less and less and less of their lives to you. So the ministry that we've been given is that, we've been, is that we bring people back to God by not counting their trespasses against them, not counting their past against them, not counting the things that they've done wrong against them. We don't tell them that those are good things, but we also don't define people by the things that they have done. But we really need to catch what Romans is saying here in Rome, because this is in Corinthians, but in order to catch what Romans is saying, we, ha- we have to be able to catch what Romans is saying if we're ever going to embody what 2 Corinthians 5 has told us to do. Because you're never going to be part of reconciling the world back to Jesus if, if that hasn't taken shape in your own life yet. So what it says in, in Romans is it says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. So even when we found ourselves just totally against God, exchanging glory for the things that are fading. Just like we talked about in Romans 1. Spitting in God's face saying, I will do it my own way, God. I do not need to do it your way. The cross of Jesus Christ, even in that moment, reconciles us. But Paul's saying that if you've been reconciled through his death, how much more should you be saved through his life? 
That big concept that we've been talking about uh, here, really this whole series, is that concept of justification. It's God's declaration that you are righteous. It's to be declared righteous by God. That's what it means. And what it is, is like we've said before, it's a status change. It's okay, this is your status, this is who you are, but because of what Jesus did, God declares you're someone else now. God declares you are now a member of the family of God. This is the declaration that you have a place in this family. That is justification. But a process then begins in you when that happens, and that process is called sanctification. Paul gets into that a bit more moving forward. Where now you actually start living like you're part of the family of God. And it's a process. It takes time. You you don't learn it all overnight. Most people don't change all of their bad habits overnight. But if you want to understand how to begin that process... And how to live a life today that is actually moving more and more and more toward wholeness. The example is Jesus Christ. See, most people, I think, we buy into Jesus died for us so that we can go to heaven. But Christians are not just people who are saved by the blood of Jesus. Christians are people who follow the way of Jesus. The way that he modeled for us, the way that he lived his life as an example for, his, for us. And his life teaches us what our lives should look like on the other side of reconciliation. His death reconciled us, paved the way. But salvation is a lot more than just getting into heaven. It's deliverance today from the person that you once were. It's a life today that you can actually become the type of person who the world actually needs you to be in order to make the world a better place. It's it's, it's reconciliation in your own life so that you can have that wholeness in your own life and you can actually live out the purpose that God has for you because he has an amazing purpose for your life. So we're reconciled by his death because Jesus dealt with our sins on the cross, but we're saved by his life. Now, honestly... The more I read this, the more I realized how shocking this actual passage is and what it's actually telling us. See, the charge in this passage about reconciliation and grasping it and understanding it is not to change everything in your life, even though it's good to change the areas of your life that need to get worked on. The charge in this verse is not to change everything. Life change will begin to become automatic when you truly begin to grasp what Jesus has done for you. The charge in this verse is actually to rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through through whom we've received reconciliation. He says rejoice. That's your job. Rejoice. Take joy in it. Delight in what he's done. Let your life be guided by the good news of what Jesus has done. But get this. For any of you who have been with us through through the whole first movement of of Romans, the word rejoice is actually the same Greek word that Paul uses in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 when he talks about boasting. And he keeps saying, don't boast. He says that Abraham had to be saved by faith alone. Otherwise, he'd have a reason to boast. He'd have something to boast about. See, the Bible, as we talked about before, it really goes out of its way to intentionally strip us of the things that we can boast in. Anything that we can do to puff ourselves up believing that we've achieved some sort of a status on our own, the Bible goes out of its way to kind of tear those walls down in us. 
And, and here in um, this passage, we finally get to this moment where he says, okay, this is the one thing you do boast in. See, if you change your whole life and, you, and, you, and all, of a sudden, all of a sudden you feel like you're saved because God did this thing and you intentionally did all this work, all of a sudden it becomes about works again. But that's why we don't boast when we get it right because there will come a time when you won't get it right. You don't boast when you find the strength to carry the burden because there's going to come a day when you need somebody else to lift that burden for you. It will get too heavy. And you're going to need to lean on somebody. And you're going to need God to be your strength. But what it says is boast, rejoice, be excited in the incredible fact that God, through Jesus Christ, has prepared a way for you to be reconciled. And when that happens, that should turn you into an agent of reconciliation, or as 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, an ambassador of reconciliation here on earth. So these couple of verses in Romans actually tell an incredible story. They tell the story of people who, they're not just people who are far from God, but it actually uses the word enemy. It says these people are enemies of God. You guys have heard me for years talk about King David and his prayer in Psalm 23. When he says, when he's thanking God, and while thanking God, he says, God, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I, I can't do this whole teaching for you today, but this, this, was very, very huge, this was very instrumental, hugely instrumental in our concept for the reconciliation table. Because with the Greek word for reconciliation, again, it's pretty cool, it makes sense what it's saying, it's also kind of self-explanatory. But the Hebrew concept of reconciliation is one of the most powerful concepts I've heard in my entire life. See, Psalm 23 is what's considered to be a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And most people find this line to be out of place because it's like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me and you comfort me. Then he says, you prepare a table for me with all the people who hate me? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies? And then it actually says, and my cup overflows. So in other words, like, dude, I'm stoked about this table that you prepared for me with all these people who probably want to kill me. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> As I enter this table of the shadow of death is looming over. He's rejoicing in the fact that this table has been set. And the reason why is incredible. See, in, in, the Hebrew word that David uses in this psalm uh, for the word table is the word shulchan. And shulchan is actually used to describe a king's table, to have a, like a king's banquet where all the king's people would come in, they would have a huge feast at this amazing, super huge table, this grand event. And from the word shulchan, we actually get an Arabic word and a tradition that comes that is still to this day, the word is still used, and still to this day, this is still practiced in Arabic culture, and it is a word, the word is solha. And solha literally means a meal between enemies with the purpose of reconciliation. It was a last-ditch effort in that day, and it still is today, before a feud between two parties got so out of hand that you can never go back. And what would happen was this. They would set the table for their enemy. And they would share a meal together. 
And both parties would enter into this meal with this understanding that we are not going to leave this table until we have come to whatever terms we need to come to so that we can find reconciliation with each other, whatever it's going to take. Google the word. You'll find several modern-day examples of them. They're fascinating, and some of them are extremely moving. There are several instances of this in the Bible. One is uh, the story of Jacob and Laban. It's uh, what's called the meal covenant between the two of them. Uh, all the way to the parable that Jesus told of the, the prodigal son, where his father sees him coming and he runs out to meet him and immediately what's he do? He says, throw a banquet. Make the banquet be thrown. And the fact that Jesus would not just embrace his son, but he would throw his son this banquet was just, just only solidified the fact that Jesus believed that reconciliation is possible even when bridges have been burned that greatly. So when David praises God by saying, God, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies and my cup overflows, he is not saying that God has done this so that he can humiliate his enemies, as some may say. He is not saying that God has brought down his enemies. He's not saying that God has prepared a table for him with the head of his enemies. He's not saying that God has prepared a table for him in which he can defeat his enemies. David is saying, God, thank you that in spite of everything that I've done to hurt so many people, you've prepared a place for me to reconcile with my enemies. About two and a half years ago now, feels like a long time, God gave us a very specific vision uh, in our church about a very specific project, uh, and you know about it, it's called the Reconciliation Table. And the concept of the Reconciliation Table is, is it is an outdoor table that's going to sit on the uh, corner lot that we own. We own a house, the Courage House, and next to us on the corner of Rademacher and, um, and Army, we own the side lot, this, this corner lot. And it's a project that we're, we've been working on there. Uh, it's just one of the many efforts that our church is committed to making uh, to, to cultivating reconciliation in our community. Uh, to reconcile people back not only to the church, but ultimately to Jesus Christ and to his love and to the embrace of a God who will meet you right where you are and not judge you for the things that you've done and not hold your trespasses against you, but will just come alongside you and love you. We want to prepare a table for our community. We want to have like the world's largest soha like every single week. That's, that's the dream. We want to prepare banquets and throw parties like Jesus says to do in Luke 14 when he says instead of inviting the people who can, who can pay you back, we're going to go out to the highways and the byways when we have enough people in the teams and stuff and we're going to invite those people and we're going to have a banquet for them and we're going to invite them in and we're going to love them and meet them where they are and give them the time of their life. It's a big vision. And we've talked about it for a very long time and we've... Um, We've even given full entire sermons just on this concept, if you ever want to go back and hear more about it. But we're kind of to a place right now where we're done talking about it. We've been talking about it, we've been talking about it, we've been talking about it, and now we're just like, let's do it. And it's actually been a whole lot easier said than done to just do it. Um, but later this summer, we believe that, this, that our whole church and everybody who's part of our community is going to have a meal together at this table as we begin the first steps of launching this. Uh, because we're going to build it. 
There's actually several churches who have come alongside of us and have been and are involved in this. Like we've cast a vision. We've been doing it for a couple of years. We've been traveling around a little bit. It costs more than you would think it would to do this project. Uh, but we've been we've been kind of casting a vision everywhere we've gone. And uh, a few a few churches have come alongside of us, including Mount Hope, uh, Brightmore, uh, K First, The Rock Church, a church called Grace Assembly in um, in Fruitport, the other side of the state. They're all coming in together to take on different aspects of it. One's going to help build the pergola. One's going to help uh, uh, build the table itself. One's going to help um, um, leveling the lot, which is like the biggest thing of the whole entire thing. So you're going to hear more about that in a couple of weeks, in the next few weeks, but it's not just going to be a table. It's also going to be a community garden, and we're going to need to put more and more garden beds and fill that thing up, and we're going to hold banquets, and we're going to have barbecues, and we're going to have a lot of fun there. And It's going to be a place that really just honestly, continuously asks ourselves this question, what if we actually take Jesus seriously about all this radical stuff that he, keeps, that he always seems to be telling people to do, but nobody ever thinks he's being serious when he says to do them? That's what we're going to do. Like, what if we just took him seriously? What if we say, well, Jesus said to do that, so let's just at least try to do it and see if it bears fruit, because it's what he said to do. But we do need your help. Um, we need your help spreading word. We need your help sharing it on Facebook. We need your help. We're, gonna, we're trying to raise as much support for as we can. Uh, so pray about that. Pray about what you can give to the project. Uh, we, we, we do have a new t-shirt. We're going to try to roll out a couple more shirts for it. They're just fundraising t-shirts, so it's not meant to just get them in everybody's hands as much as it is to uh, just raise a little bit of extra money to do more with for the project, to get more shirts made, and then also to keep the banquets going as we start to grow it. So that's one way you can help. So we're going to, uh, a second nonprofit for our church uh, is being set up to help make it so this can become something that isn't just a one and done thing, but it's actually reproducible in other communities, in other neighborhoods, not even just in the form of a table, but in different forms uh, that, with that same mindset of reconciliation, which you'll hear about more down the road. But, you know, come serve. We'll start giving you some times to serve. Maybe you can donate a garden bed, one bed. Um, whatever it might be. Maybe you could help move dirt. Maybe, you know, whatever it is that you can do. I, I don't know. I don't know where it's all going to come from. All I know is enough people now are kind of on board that I'm like, we're just going to do it and we're going to see what happens. We're going to see who helps. We're going to see what happens. But I, I know the entire purpose is reconciliation. Because I know that our, I believe that the Church of Jesus Christ's entire purpose is reconciliation. I think when you read the Bible, it's very clear that's what we're here for. And I want to share this one last thing with you and then we're going to close and I'll close with the story. But, I know for a few of us that have been here for a while, you've heard us talking about this table and you've heard us talking about it and it's been kind of like this redundant thing because it's been over two years now. And we're like, well, this is what we see. And then you go to the lot and you're like, yeah, but it's not there. And then they're like, yeah, but this is what we see. And then you drive by the sidelight and you're like, yeah, but it's not there. And that can get discouraging. Um, it, it doesn't look any different. Uh, but I, I assure you, nobody's harder on themselves than I am about that. But for us as a church, and I, I want you guys to understand this, like our church works together, we're a body. You know, everybody contributes to making just the church itself move forward. And beyond that, we sort of have to formulate partnerships to push it further even more than that. But for us as a church, in doing what we do, and being about what we're about in the community, even a project like that is a lot bigger than ourselves. And the only currency that we really have as a church is our love for the community. So if you can give, give. If you can do more, do it. If all you have to give is love, then love more because that's what our community needs more than anything. If others come alongside us, we can do a lot more.
But this is what I came to the conclusion. This is why it drives me nuts that this has taken so long. But I was very confident in this decision that Don and I made. And that's, listen, if God wants this done, then God has to do it. He has to bring the people who can do it. He needs to bring the craftsmen. He needs to bring the laborers. He needs to bring the money. He needs to bring the people who will say, this thing matters. This needs to get done. We told God, God, we'll do what you say. The things that we read in your Bible, like in, in the Bible, in your word, it says, like, you know, we'll love our neighbors. We'll, we'll dream for the future of our community, but everything else is in your hands. But reaching people and loving the community and living the life that Jesus has laid out for us to reconcile people who are far from him, and that's a long play. I want you guys to realize that it is not something that happens overnight. You know, yesterday we had an amazing outreach and um, with amazing partners, but that partnership has taken years to cultivate. And we had a great turnout, even after it was so cold for so long and it started to get warmer, we still had a great turnout of people that came through that thing. But getting that going in the neighborhood has taken us years to build, even to that. And I think if the weather would have been there, it would have been even, even more people. And some of the people that you're going to meet through this and through the church and through the kids club and the table and all the stuff that we're doing, it's going to be years before you see fruit in their lives. Some people it'll be tomorrow. Others it won't be. That's why we hold so tightly to that verse in Galatians 6, 9. It says, let us not grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. Just keep loving people. Keep serving people. Keep giving yourself to the community. Keep giving yourself to the needs of the people. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Don and I, uh, we teach a class. We teach a class every Thursday at Life Challenge. So Life Challenge is basically, it's Teen Challenge, but for Detroit. And so it's, it's like their campus here in Detroit. It's a, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. And every, every Thursday, we spend two hours teaching the book of Romans in kind of a smaller setting. So it's the same book that we've been going through all year here. We teach it uh, there. Sometimes it's just six, six or eight people. Each, each semester is a little bit different. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. We get each student for three months, which is about 24 hours of classroom time with them. And so we meet a lot of interesting, awesome, fun characters. And there's one guy in particular that we met. Uh, He's there on the very first day of our very first class, and this is how we were introduced to him. About halfway through the class, you all know Don talks fast, I talk even faster. We have a lot to say. And so he's like overwhelmed, and hearing us talk, he raises his hand. He's like, so you guys are our teachers? This is after we've taught him for like an hour. It's like, yeah, obviously we're your teachers. But yeah, he's like, like, so what, I have to listen to you for the next three months? That was the first thing he said to us. We're like, oh, yeah, I guess you do. I'm sorry. He just went really out of his way, though, to like, Make it really clear he didn't want to be there. He didn't want us to be there. He didn't care to listen to us. And the first month with him, I got really frustrated with him because it was just more of that. Like, he didn't want to be there. He didn't want me to be there. He didn't want Don to be there. He didn't care. And then into the second month, he, got, he really started to frustrate me because he started to get a little talk back, snappy, just a little bit. He wasn't responding when I'd ask him questions. Like, I'd directly call on him to read, and he wouldn't read. And I'd be like, read! And then Don was like, dude, Jake, just don't make him read. <laughs> You don't need to make him read. But I, I, start, I, I started to get to this place where I almost was like, man, this guy's like literally against me in this class. He's like the thorn in my side. But Don just helped me to show him as much grace as I possibly could to this person because when you re- think about it in the situation they're in, you realize they're just trying to do their best to push through this time where they're so boxed in, so boxed into so many rules. And obviously he was feeling, oh, how much can I push this? But with Don's help, we just tried to love him. 
And eventually, in one of those moments in our classroom where we asked all these questions to share their stories, which we did several times and got nothing out of him, eventually one time he opened up a tiny bit. And I'm not gonna actually share his story today, though it's incredibly powerful. I just, I woke up this morning thinking about sharing it. I'm like, man, I just don't know that I should do that. So I'm not gonna share it with you today. But I'm gonna, in this, not really the point, but it's a, it's a very, but that first day he shared just one thing with us. He shared a little bit. Um, kind of like that first step after two months already of talking to him. Um, and, and he opened a little bit. And, and, and Don and I, we, we started asking questions about it. We just wanted a little bit more information about what was going on and what, where he had come from. And he started to answer a little bit more, slowly but surely. The more he shared, something just started to break in him. And that resistance that he had to us began to turn into an openness. And I, I remember on the very last week of our classes that he was in, so it was the third month of his classes. He was about to be done with us completely uh, and have to, he doesn't have to listen to us anymore, all that. I showed up for class really early that morning because I had a lot to prepare because it was part of, that I hadn't studied as well and I was trying to go early to study. And he comes there, right, like an hour before class. And I'm like, I need to study. But, it's, but, but he, he, I asked him how he's doing. And uh, I asked him how his kids are doing because he, he has kids. He told us that he has kids. And I asked him how he's holding up in the program. And in that moment, on that very last day of class for him, before class, before it even started, he told me his whole story. It wasn't a one-liner. It wasn't this short, heartless response. And it was one of the hardest stories I'd ever heard in my entire life. I'm like, how on earth are you here? How on earth are you still going and staying strong and still fighting? But it was a privilege to hear that story. I hated hearing it because it broke my heart. But it was, it put everything into perspective for me about him. And the only reason I tell you just that is because I want you to understand something as we interact with people that maybe we don't know or we start to learn about. See, you never know what's going on underneath those tough guy layers. You never know what's going on underneath the parts that you do see. See, this is a guy who ultimately, the reconciliation he cared about was he was concerned with reconciling with his family. And if he's going to find reconciliation in any other area of his life, he's going to need to know that the God that we're sharing with him actually cares about the safety and the reconciliation of his family. And the only reason at all that he opened up to Don and I is because we talked to him about the things that mattered to him. See, most of us, we don't even realize the entangled mess that some people's lives really are. But the point is that the gospel doesn't just untangle your soul so that you can go to heaven someday. It takes a hold of your life. And it will begin to untangle your life in such a way that you can start to rebuild some of those bridges that you've burned. You can begin to set the table for some of the people who you've hurt. You can begin to find health in those areas of your life that for so long have felt so hopeless. And the church's job is not only to experience that for ourselves and close the doors and sing kumbaya, our job is also to be facilitators of that for other people. It's not always easy. It's not easy because most people that you're going to come in contact with and that I come in contact with every single day, they live their lives behind so many layers that we never see. 
But love is a universal language. Love speaks English and it speaks Spanish and it speaks German and it speaks French, it speaks all of it. It it can cut through walls and it can build people up. And that's why Jesus and what Jesus did in the cross of Jesus is so incredibly powerful because it speaks truth on that same universal level that is for everyone. And if we can learn to live even a fraction of that type of love to other people, we're gonna start to see a whole lot more people's lives changed the work that we do here. You know, I, I can tell you this. Our friend from Life Challenge, he finished our class, he passed our class. He's almost done with the program. We're still there every week. I'm there every single week. She's there as much as she can because we don't always have sitters anymore. For a long time, before Emily got a job, as a banker, she would always watch the baby so we could do that. So, uh, but, so some weeks we don't have, a, we don't have that, but most of the time they're, I'm always there every week. And every single week to this day, it's been months since this class has gotten out, between breaks, between our first and second hour, he always comes to the classroom. And he always sits and talks with me for the entire break. The entire break. Until the second hour starts. Because what happened was that little bit of openness that we kind of allowed him to talk through actually turned into friendship. You know, uh, last week was one of those weeks that we, we couldn't get a babysitter. Uh, so we actually tried to take the baby to class a, a week ago, and that didn't work very well. We tried it. But, um, but Don had to study, so we both drove in, and we realized we can't take the baby. So she sat in the car and just studied. I went in and taught the class. He comes in during the break like he always does. We talk till the break is over. Then after the break is over, or he asks about Don, finds out where she is. She, he goes out to the parking lot and talks to her, says hi to her, and visited with her. You know, I'm realizing more and more that most people are not interested in the God of a person who's not interested in them. If you want to be an ambassador of reconciliation, you need to care about what other people care about. You need to care about other people's stories. We need to care if somebody had a rough day or a rough year or a rough life. That needs to matter to us. You know, I found that people tend to talk when somebody cares enough to listen. And as I reflected on that story this week, and if I would have shared his story with you, you'd all be crying. Like, it's, it's a lot. And I was reflecting on his story and all of the stories that were written yesterday here at uh, Courage Cares. And I, I sort of had this hopeful thought of, man, what if his story could be all the stories? Like, what if we just kept loving people who were resistant to us, even though we have no idea what's going on underneath those layers, we just keep loving them and keep loving them. And what if we set the table for every single one of them with every single day with hopes that one day one of them will show up, sit down, and have dinner with us? What if the people who today are turning the other direction when they see us coming, because, oh, you're the church, are popping their heads in to visit us this time next year and see how you're doing, saying hi and to say thank you. I have a lot of hope for our community right now. I have a lot of hope for our church. I have a lot of hope for Detroit. And I hope that you do too.